welcome to Beyond Beckdale, the podcast about film and feminism. I'm your host, Contrera. It's been a while since we posted an episode and we are shortly due to go on hiatus while we look into what we can do to make the podcast better for you and what subjects we'd like to tackle. In the interim, I had an amazing time talking to Kristen Jansen from the podcast So I'm Watching This Show, which can be found on soimwatching.com. It was a really great conversation. We were initially trying to cover the new Oscar diversity criteria, but I kept interrupting Kristen and asking her about films she loved and hates. So we actually get in depth on subjects such as Joker, Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Greta Gerwig. And the episode is a conversation with two women talking about what they love about film. So, pretty on point for the podcast. With no further ado, here is the episode. Enjoy. What did you guys decide to start your podcast? What motivated you? So, uh, like three years ago, in late 2017, we actually self-published a novel that we had been working on together for like 18 months. Oh and, my god, amazing. What was that yeah. about? Um, it's called Fairy Tale and it's sort of um my partner Will, he's always been really interested in, you know, the the old, old fairy tales and and then obviously also the Disney ones, but to a lesser extent because they really sanitize everything. So he wanted to do kind of a mashup where they all exist together. And it's sort of a more modern society, but there's like an evil, you know an evil presence that's trying to destroy things and it starts killing all the princesses and they have to like figure out why and destroy it. And so that's kind of, that's what we did there. It's called fairy tale. You can buy it on Amazon. It's also, there's a link to it on our website, which is so I'm (laughs) watching.com. Yeah. Keep going. This is great. (laughs) Started. uh, We did that. We finished it with uh, the help of our friend, Tim. He edited it for us. And, uh, we were sort of in a spot where we didn't really know what we wanted to tackle next. And no matter what it was, it was going to be another really long process. So we, I, it was my idea. Cause I had gotten really, really into my favorite murder at the time. Oh yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I was like hard into that podcast specifically. And I just told him, I was like, you know, I think we could do this. It, they're just talking to each other and it's, you know, they're not doing anything like crazy intense or like it's not really produced like a radio show, like hardcore or anything like that. So I was like, I think we should do a podcast. And he was a little hesitant because he was like, what would we even do it about? And I was like, well, movies and TV. And that was when my husband chimed oh. in and he was like, he was like, I'll edit it for you. And we were like, really? Amazing. And, and he was like, yeah, because that's what he does for a living. And so he was like, yeah, I'll edit it for you. Anything for you guys to stop shouting agreements at each other in front of me all of the time. <laughs> so he was like, just do it. And so we started um, pretty, I, I got Will on board pretty quickly. It was like right after Thanksgiving that year. And so we started recording and then yeah. we launched in January, 2018. So we're almost three years in now. 
Yeah, so you've had quite a few episodes. And you can tell, you know, it's funny you say that about your husband because it's really well put together, your podcast, in a way that some aren't, particularly, when, you know, when you're not doing it professionally. So that right. that was, like, so cool to have someone to do that because I do a lot of the editing for hours. Sometimes people help, but podcasts can go on for for quite a long time. Like, your episodes are, episodes are a good length and so are ours. And um, that can be quite a task that I don't think people realise, that it's not just the talk if you're kind of you know two two three-man bands like us yeah if Uh, that's the thing that I think is really I think it's a little unique about our situation because none of us could do it without all three of us because mm -hmm. I I, will could pick up some of the editing if my husband wasn't doing it because he went to school for that too but I am totally clueless at that I that's not my area of expertise at all and so I really am just here to talk about it I don't really have any I am the talent (laughs) that is it (laughs) honestly you don't want you don't want to get into it if you can get someone else to do it I think it's the primary thing that a lot of podcasters outsource um and also like I've had to get so used to hearing my own voice I don't know if you've had the same issue because I presume you listen back Yeah, I'm old hat at that now. I actually don't even listen back to everything anymore. It's only really if I'm, if I want to really remember what we talked about, but I don't listen back to everything anymore, even though I probably should, but I got used to my, I got used to listening to my voice after like episode four. I was just like, (laughs) well, that's what I sound like. Nothing I can do about it now. (laughs) It is strange, isn't it? Because you have all this thing like old school listening to voicemail messages and all of that thinking, God, is that what I sound like? Um, And then there is definitely like a tipping point where you've listened to your own voice so many times that you're just, okay, let's not worry about it. It's not what I sound like in my own head, but I recognize it as myself now. Yeah. Um, and voices are lovely. I love that. I just love the play between you two. It's really good when you're doing it with someone who is your good friend. I think that yeah. chemistry is something that you can't necessarily um, like fabricate or, or not right. immediately. Yeah. So what have been uh, some of your favorite episodes if you want to direct people and direct me because I haven't listened to all of them? Sure. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, there's almost 300. There's, there's no way for you to have listened to all of them. It's a lot. We do, mm. So we're twice weekly and then we've had a handful of bonus episodes. Um, we did some TV shows that we thought everybody would enjoy and stuff like that. So um, I think Will likes to say that the, the first episode that he thinks sounds really good is when we did The Greatest Showman. Because <laughs> um, yeah. that's, that's like episode seven, I think it was, seven or eight or something like that. And then I think our both of our favorite episode is when we watched Alita Battle Angel. We both hated it and we didn't we both thought the other one was gonna like it so we were dancing around it for like 20 <laughs> minutes whether or not we hated it and then we finally were like no it was really bad and then we just were like off on a tangent about all of the like ridiculous stuff in the movie so that was that's probably my to, to date that's probably my favorite episode just because of how down the rabbit hole we kind of went I always um, think about criticism because like, like like you have written something and I've also like made a short and, and things like that. So I can um, you can see it from the perspective of a creative and also of a critic. Yeah. And I always worry about being too critical the more I know about making movies. It's like, oh, my God, so much hard work went into something. I'm worried about the critique side of things because I know how hard it is to make a movie. But the episodes I love listening to of other people's podcasts are when they're slating. <laughs> 
something. You've got so, so much more to talk about when there's I, something ridiculous or bad. I definitely tend to agree with you. I don't, that's actually part of the reason, like part of the, our sort of mantra when we started the podcast too, is we were like, well, there's already so many podcasts where like we said before there's just there's just two dudes just railing on stuff and you're like that's not it's like not always fun for me to listen to especially because at a certain you get to a certain point where it's like they're railing on something that you love and you're like I feel like you're doing this on purpose like you're just looking for things that are bad about it and so oh yeah I completely agree that's horrible yeah. so I don't like that I like I do enjoy when it is like when you're putting a funny slant on what you think is, is bad, which is what I think we did with the Alita episode. But that was, that was like our mantra is that we really, we prefer to like things. We're, we're not in this to, to like go after people for doing something bad. And I think that that's something that sets us a little bit apart. Like most of our stuff is stuff that we enjoy. And if it's not, I like to think that we are at least, properly oh, no, you're vocal very, about why not yeah. <laughs> you're very good natured about it. I think because of like your camaraderie no I've not like you know like I said I've only listened to a few episodes but the ones I have it's always so it is good natured what you're mm. saying I think it's okay to tease and it, if something's ridiculous right. it's funny it's the yeah personal criticism of of someone you know yeah. that it gets harder and harder so uh, I, I agree so for me obviously personally particularly with this podcast if I see something outrageous in the portrayal of a female character I'm gonna rail against it because that's no, what absolutely. I do yeah but it doesn't necessarily mean and sometimes that does mean like I, I am berating screenwriters or directors but I think it's perfectly okay in the furtherance of a cause it's not okay to go you did a shit job that's that's a terrible exactly. film blah yeah. And that, that's the thing that I think to go back to what you said about you feel bad saying being like this was so bad but it's like like because so many people worked on it and it's like in my the way that I think about it is it's like yeah so many people did work on it someone should have caught that it was this bad. Yeah. <laughs> But that's when I normally say for me, it's normally like, how many women did you have working on this? Did yeah. any one of them think this character was a bit weird? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that kind of goes to my point about um, yeah. uh, cast and crew, if you can get people, um, yeah, more diverse. And I just wanted to talk to you about what you think about the new Oscar inclusivity rules, because that's definitely been the biggest story, I think maybe after Inclusion Riders um, in Hollywood, that will probably change the face, I hope, of at least filmmaking. Um, Did you have any like immediate thoughts when you heard about the new rules? I did, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, because I know they've been sort of, discussing changes that they could make for a couple of years now and so I had not even really heard like whispers about what they had decided and then they they like announced that day they were like here's the new rules they're starting in two years get on board and I was like oh that's impressive like that's yeah decisive like something decisive that you've done that's going to make a difference I think and I I was actually pretty impressed and then I you know, there's always the backlash. And so I started seeing things that are like, this is too little, too late. And I'm like, well, then 
if that's your attitude, nothing's ever going to change. Don't I like these incremental steps, which is like in implementing this within two years. I think that's aggressive. Like, I think that's a really small time frame to do something this huge in. And I, I kind of like it. It's funny you should say that about the people saying too little too late, because I agree. I think I've heard uh, criticism on both sides. And I suppose that um, that's the world we live in now and everyone has an opinion. But um, I expected it from people saying, no, my favourite films are not going to get made now. I want all these white guys telling this World War II story. Don't deny me. Like, well, um, I, I don't I don't agree with that. But yeah. I, I saw that coming. I didn't see coming some people saying this is not enough and it, and, right. and i'm not saying i disagree because i don't know if it is 100%. but i'm like let them try let's let's try and let's see how it goes the thing for me is like nothing's going to keep those you know all white man world war ii movies from getting made they just can't be nominated for oscars anymore which honestly if i never see another world war ii movie nominated for an oscar <laughs> it'll be too soon despite how good i think most of them are I, oh, that's the thing. That story. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, but I've seen yeah. it, and now I'm kind of like, like 1917 was really cool, but it was really cool because Sam Mendes did a cool camera thing. I like, it wasn't something new that I needed to see. Like, it didn't feel like a story that was fresh. And that's the kind yeah. of thing where I'm like, do we really need it? It's like we, we've, we've done it so much, so so much, and so, I think you know. Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg can make World War II movies <laughs> until the cows come home, but maybe yeah. they just won't be nominated for Oscars anymore. And I don't think that's a bad thing because to me, the Oscars have become so stodgy in a way that is not, it's not interesting to watch them anymore because the same kind of stories and the same kind of people are winning everything. And it's just a little annoying. The issue I have is not only are these films starring all these people and being made by these people now, but history was, uh, a lot of history was, was uh, well, not created, made by guys, white guys who were going right. to war or inventing something or what have you. And they were also the ones who were recording these mm. uh, efforts. So I've got a bit of an issue, for example, with the trial of the Chicago 7. I know yeah. that that film is going to be amazing. Right. But I was like getting just very agitated watching the trailer going I know these people are all real historical figures <laughs> yeah. but it's just man after man after man uh -huh. after man and all the and the judges are man and the prosecutors are man and the newspaper person's man and it's like <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I don't begrudge talking telling this story because certainly for me it's something I didn't know about much anyway and it's timely but if we just keep going through these historical biopics unless unless we decide to colorblind cast which i don't really have a problem with no but, me neither um, um I, I i i suppose um yeah because i remember in 1917 there's like i got very excited when there was like an indian or pakistani soldier i'm like yeah. oh he's just shot that in there mendez well done yep. good try <laughs> one person. and one french woman with a baby great but um <laughs> Uh, I, I, I do think that, yeah, that, that that could help. But there are other stories to tell that we don't even know about. And yeah. those are the stories that will be so much more easier to meet these tests or yeah. whatever, being and more inclusive. I think that that speaks to the reason that they're doing this, which is that it's such a so many, you know, mediums are dominated by men because they were 
always the only people who were like allowed to do it. And so we're finally in a place where there's so much more opportunity for women and people of color, but it's still, there's still this barrier to entry because they're not the ones who've always done it. And I think these rules are what are going to really break that open, despite the fact that they might be not very, um, they're not exhaustive new rules, but they are a place to start for sure. It's quite interesting the way that the Academy has done this. So They've said that you have to meet uh, two out of four of the following standards to be deemed eligible. So it's not as if you have to have everything anyway, which I didn't know when I first heard about the rules. I thought in every category you had to do this. And I realised that actually you could make 1917 again, but as long as you had everyone behind the scenes who yeah. fitted into one of the diversity groups and you had that I'm fascinated by the part of it as well which um looks at the marketing I never really thought about that I was so, solely thinking about the production and it's like yeah. yes the story should be about x it should be written by somebody it should be you know um directed and the and the crew and the cast should all be people from these uh minority groups but I didn't think about how marketing is such an important part of the industry especially that, in america yeah. it that's like mm-hmm. that's like oh, over half the battle is how you market the movie because it could be bad and it would still do really well at the box office if you marketed it properly yeah and um yeah there are some movies i never see because i didn't see the marketing and it's yeah. so upsetting and this this is why the the Netflix and Amazon world is so good in some ways um, because you do get access to things that particularly like over here as well I didn't even know this until a few years ago which is so naive of me considering (laughs) how um, much I've been into film but I just figured if if something was made it would come over here but we are not that massive a market whereas you guys get so much stuff it was just it was a bit naive of me to realize that we're not going to get every film unless people think it's going to make enough money so I'm just looking here yeah audience development representation in marketing publicity and distribution the studio or film company has multiple in-house senior executives from among the following underrepresented groups so yeah that that speaks to your point that um it's just as important to think about audience development as it is about uh production development and what i really enjoyed as well about this is that they've put women as the top group and i'm like we are the top group that need representation because we make up 51 percent of the world no other group and i am not against any other diversity but no other group is so large to be a minority i totally agree it's It's the type of thing where it's something that we get frustrated with because I'm a woman and, you know, Will is really drawn to strong female characters and has been his whole life. His family is kind of matriarchal, so he's always been drawn to that. And so it's something that really frustrates us when we're watching something and we can just, without even looking, tell that zero women were in the writer's room. (laughs) Cause, or like, Mm. and, or definitely didn't like a man wrote this movie and he's never met a human woman in his life. It's like that kind (laughs) of stuff where, where we're just like, there's so many women who could have helped you avoid these pitfalls. Why are you doing it this way? And so that's the kind of stuff where I'm so excited for what's happening right now. And, you know, even still, I can only name a handful of women where it's like, I'm really excited for Ava DuVernay and for Greta Gerwig and for Olivia Wilde because they're able to tell their own stories in a way that I think makes it 
more authentic. Like it feels like a female story when you are getting it from the female perspective in a way that even the most enlightened man doesn't necessarily have those, the, the, like the specific brain in order to make those proper decisions about something like that. And I think, again, that's what these rules are going to do is really make that a lot more prevalent going forward. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yes. I love the fact that there are so many more um, directors coming up and um, I, you know, I was seeking it out, but what I'm trying to get to is a point where I don't have to seek out the gender of the director because it's already right. being put forward. And I think that's already happening. So mm-hmm. I am really excited um, about that. But for me, it's as much about kind of your first point about the writer's room. I don't even mind if a project is made by men and has more male characters. If when I see the female character or, or two, um, they are realistic. And that's where I think you're right. If you just had someone in the writer's room to say, this isn't what they'd say, this is probably what they'd be thinking about, etc., etc. Even that is a step forward did you see about the ron howard movie with um lulu wang lulu yeah, Wang said, he, um, yeah yeah he, he was going to make a, a a particular asian story and she said i just i don't want to make this but i don't think he should be making because he doesn't get that he doesn't right. have that direct experience i kind of i agree with her 100 on that and and that should be the case but i also think i don't want to get to a point where only people of a specific category can make a film about that category i think we haven't got there yet we still should be like we should still be pushing these these movies forward where women are making female stories because there aren't enough of them and also you know um people of color and lgbt etc etc but it's because there's a new film coming out did you see the Stanley Tucci Colin first as well and I was like I "I don't know how I feel about this because I'm like you neither of you are gay I know so okay that is something that we talk about relatively frequently because I I don't have as many feelings about straight people playing gay and gay people playing straight because I think you really reach a slippery slope with that where if you're like only gay people can play gay characters because then it's like it's one thing it's like one step away from saying well then gay people can only play gay characters and I don't like that at all because Mm. I don't think that gay people should be pigeonholed into playing only gay roles we would already at this point be without so many great performances if that was how it was happening and so I really hesitate with that. I definitely think there should, if if a straight person is playing a gay role, I think there should be gay people involved behind the scenes. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. I don't, I don't like that restriction specifically just because I think it's a little too reductive. And now to go along with that, I also don't think that if a straight man plays a gay role, I don't think there should be headlines saying what a brave choice because that's so patronizing. <laughs> But that's the kind of, that's where it's at for me is because it just, it feels like it's going to get really reductive and exclusive in a way that I don't, I wouldn't want that to happen going forward. Yeah, I agree with you. I've got a slightly, maybe maybe this is a bit more controversial take on it and you can tell me what you think. But I think for now, I like to see it because there's still such a disparity. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with, um, 
Hollywood and all film film studios, wherever, pushing forward the idea that stories should be made by the people who have the closest experience of what they're telling on screen, where yeah. they are one of these underrepresented groups. Yeah, and, and, I, and I can definitely agree with that, for sure. Yeah, but then not the other way around. So almost some positive discrimination and, and kind of negative discrimination against <laughs> your classic white guy saying sure. you should stop making those. But at the same time, in agreement with you, if Lulu Wang wants to make a story about white men, I don't want to stop her doing that either, even though she might not have the same experience of being a white man as a white yeah. man. But she can have Ron Howard come to her meetings to consult about what it's like <laughs> to have been in happy days. Sure. And, um, like, yeah, that, that, that could be the story. Wow, what a movie this is turning out to be. I'll write this script right now. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's the thing where it's like, it's not that... I think what's going to I think what's going to happen is I think there's going to be sort of a natural winnowing process, which is that a <laughs> lot of these mediocre white men who just make money because they're white men who got in with a studio are are going to be, you know, naturally winnowed out of the selection process when all of these potentially more qualified more diverse people are coming in and finally getting the opportunity to tell the stories and make the films that they want to make. I think we're going to see a lot less mediocre white dudes being very successful, which I think is appropriate. Yeah, completely. And I want to pick up on something else you said earlier, actually, which was about Will, your co-host, which is that he was saying how he wanted to see uh these like maybe more matriarchal or what have you female focused stories and i think there's another like kind of underlying um stereotypes that i think we probably all have which is that we are presuming that male viewers only want to watch male stories and that's kind of um not fair either i think yeah. that a, a lot of men want to watch a great film and they are mostly given white male stories so why wouldn't they yeah. do that and um yeah i'm sure there's something you know we can go into some uh, sexist stereotypes which you know have a perhaps a modicum of truth somewhere like you know uh straight white men might not want to watch uh, as many rom-coms about a single girl in a big city kind <laughs> of thing but at the same time that's because we have like we've so gendered everything mm -hmm. uh, you know genre and even actors and actresses what we expect to see them in and um I really want to just like break down those barriers because uh, we cannot make genres a like gendered it's it's ridiculous we can have personal taste <laughs> yeah of course but you know there are some films I absolutely love which completely fail the Bechdel test oh, of course. and Me too. can be awful yeah can be awful to um women but uh, but at the same time as such well-made stories um uh, although I say that but then I also sometimes think but if I was just allowed to help them in the editing room I could have just we could have got around it. that upskirt shot Schneider basically Louis Rainieri's mortgage bonds were amazingly profitable for the big banks they made billions and billions on their two percent fee they got for selling each of these bonds but then they started running out of mortgages to put in them after all there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Benjo. 
So shall we move now to um, uh, films that we think that, that you that you love or that you don't like that um, may pass or fail these new criteria? Because I suppose the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? We don't really know what this actually means. And with every rule, people are always trying to find a way to uh, get through a loophole. There's, um, I am interested in in how they all do but it it is like what you said where there's there are so many movies that i love that you know in the first place don't pass the bechdel test because there's not even like a singular woman in them most of the time (laughs) but i think that there's that's the thing where i do i do like the bechdel test because i think it's a i think it's a smart just like the oscar the new oscar rules i think it's a smart place to start but i think it's like you said there's nothing excluding these other movies from being good or even great they just are not representative of the world as a whole and so that's yeah. the kind of thing where i the we were talking about the trial of the chicago seven and the first thing i thought of when you said that was that movie from a couple of years ago called the big short about the u.s yes the recession in 2008 and i was like the thing watching that movie first of all i mean it was amazing and it was really good and it was cleverly edited and it was funny and heartbreaking and all of these really excellent things but it's it's all women except for one like or i'm oh, sorry it's all men except all for men. one getaway <laughs> shot <laughs> margot robbie in the bathtub drinking champagne yeah. which again was hilarious but you watch this movie and you're like i know that it was all men doing this like I know that that's how it happened. All men worked at these banks. All men work at like, um, you know, the stock market. These are all men. And I'm aware of that. But at the same time, it was like, if I see one more white man in this movie, I'm going to kill somebody. I think you make a really good point about Margot Robbie as well, which is it's we remember her like Mm -hmm. she's in it like twice in like one in a bath. And is she both in a bath? I don't know. She's always in a bubble bath. And it's like, I will not forget her scenes, Mm -hmm. but also she's naked or, you know, looks naked in a bubble bath with a glass of champagne looking like her Wolf of Wall Street character. It's like it's it's not only that that film is just about guys it's that when they when adam mckay put a woman in it which mm-hmm. he found a way to do so he <laughs> did it in the most obnoxious sexist way and by the way i love the big short it's a great film yeah, i love so this as well i think he's amazing and very his his type of humor is what i like there's a certain cutting to it but also it's not it's not silly you know it's quite yeah it, it wants you to think about things but um it's like, and I know he probably said this is the thing about like um, pastiche and what have you. When you're when you're trying to be sarcastic about these things, then I get that he's mocking that whole thing. But sometimes I'm like, you you're too sophisticated, and actually for for, for your one joke, when really you're setting back the cause. Yeah. You're, so yeah. I definitely agree. And I mean, it it mitigates it slightly that she specifically is like, I'm here so you'll pay attention to this difficult to understand yes. thing about the American housing market, <laughs> which is funny, yeah. but it, it gets into that place that's, where... That's how I get it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it gets into that place yeah. where it's like, it's almost too clever that the people that need to be understanding that it's satire and a joke are just like, hey, it's a hot chick. Because it's it's how I feel about the people who like South Park. I think <laughs> South Park is funny. 
And I think South Park is smart. And I think they go too far sometimes, but I think they're very smart with their satire and what they do with the show and how they comment on, you know, modern society. However, I think a majority of the people who love South Park don't like it that way. They just are taking it at face value in a way that I think the people who could have benefited from understanding that Margot Robbie in the big short was satire are just like, there's a hot chick in a bathtub and that's what I like. So I will listen to her, but they don't understand that by doing so they're feeding into this thing. And that I think is what's more frustrating. Oh my God. So much. And it's just, you know, is it, is it a filmmaker's job to educate the audience? And many would say, no, I'm a pure creative. I'm going to do this, which I think is the Joker argument. And um, I don't know if you heard any of those episodes of the pod, but it took me a long time to even watch it. And me too. uh, We even... (laughs) Yeah, and we even made an episode of the pod when I hadn't even seen it. And the whole way through, I'm going, I know what I'm doing is terrible because I've not even seen this, but I don't want to see it. Oh, my God. And then I finally watched it. And I was like, okay, I actually see now. But I needed some distance anyway. Like, I couldn't have watched it when the whole, like, all the incel fans were going mental. But um, I, you know, I consider myself a lover of film, and I I can divorce myself from some of the you know the incel portrayal which I still think Joaquin Phoenix was doing um versus like what it's saying about society Mm -hmm. and it's like that's because you know tap tap myself on the shoulder I think I'm so great you know I think I can see the difference between it and understand it but what about those stupid idiots at the cinema who just want to be like joker and shoot people but but at the same time I'm like I I always get confused as to who made it is it Todd Phillips yeah. yeah, is it Todd Phillips that made it? Yeah, I always say the Farrell. I think I say Peter Farrelly for some reason. It's just some kind of weird no, comedy. Made, dark. He made Green Book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So maybe Which it was, was also yeah. not great. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but um, uh, oh, where was my train of thought again? I always forget the names of directors, and it takes me off the train. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think he may have said it, it may have been Phillips or somebody of the time said it isn't my job to be a teacher or, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and, and I kind of get that because we have made the, like the goggle box our leader, you know, everything we watch at the cinema and on TV now, particularly during pandemic as well, when we've had so much more screen time. Yeah. Um, everything is we are worshipping that box now. And so I'm in two minds because I'm like, it shouldn't be your job. But maybe a little bit it is your job. So, because yeah. You, yeah. What do you I think? agree. I agree that it's, especially for someone who who is, who is purely creative, like most directors tend to be, especially, you know, top echelon directors. I agree that they shouldn't have to be teaching. However, I think that they should sort of have an ear to the ground of where we are socially as, yeah. a, as a whole society. And I... I think that had that Joker movie come out closer to when the Christopher Nolan trilogy was still happening, I would have accepted it far more readily than I did in the year 2019. In yeah. in which case, I hated it, and I didn't, I I couldn't divorce myself from from how I felt about it, like socially. And so yeah. I didn't like it. I didn't like the performance. I thought it was all very pandering to a group of people that don't need pandering to, if there's anything yep. that we know for <laughs> true. 
And and it just it really it frustrated me in a way that I I still can't fully articulate except for that I just I wish that Joaquin Phoenix had won another Oscar for literally any other performance <laughs> he's done. I really it it to me it wasn't even it wasn't even really an interesting performance. It was just sort of over the top in a in a weird way that wasn't that I don't think had very much nuance and especially not compared with the the rest of his career as I've experienced it which has had so many nuanced before I mean he's one of my favorite actors in general I've I've he's loved him amazing actor. yeah I mean yeah. I've loved him since the early 90s he's in a movie called Parenthood when he's like a tiny little kid yeah. and I just <laughs> I've loved him so long. And then for him to, I mean, I know he's got the Oscar, for, doesn't he have an, or a golden globe, at least for walk the line, but for him to uh, have won he, an Oscar. Reese Witherspoon did, but did he, I can't remember. He was nominated. Yeah. yeah. But for him to have won for, for this performance, it just is, it, it's mm. that's, these are the moments when the Oscars really irritate me because I'm like, I don't see how you look at the rest of the nominees and you think this which I feel like I could do and I'm not an actor and you feel like this is the best. <laughs> I'd love to see you as the you Joker. Yeah. Well, it's obviously comical to, to like imagine, you know, me doing it or even to be frank, someone besides Joaquin Phoenix, because he does, yeah. he does embody it very well. And he, he did make a lot of physical choices and stuff, but it, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, I feel like you're just doing this because more people talked about this performance than the other ones. And I don't think that that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think the controversy titillated. This is yeah. always my worry mm -hmm. that directors think they're taking the piss out of something and actually they're deifying it. And yeah. that's, and they want and, and they won't accept that. And it annoys me so much because it's like, I know what you were trying to do. I understand your creative endeavor. Maybe you shouldn't feel like you have to owe anything to anyone, but you were paid millions of dollars for yeah. this. And you know that this is going to be a success. And it became a billion dollar movie. It's crazy times. Yeah, I slightly disagree with you in the sense that I do think it is a really good performance, but in a way that I was so uncomfortable. And, that I, could and, and I think that is a reaction. It's not what I want. It's not yeah. my favourite. But I recognise that that is eliciting a reaction from me that I just hate. So I feel like maybe that should be rewarded for doing something. I don't agree. I didn't want him to be the winner. I didn't think he was the best, but I... I, I could accept the win for showing something, but then I, I, I that's why I like the Annenberg Institute and a lot of these places that do these surveys and research into this, because I want to know how these movies affect the culture, because there certainly have been an incel rise and, you know, the QAnon and, and Trump related things. Now, is it all related to the joke? I'm not necessarily saying no. that. No, but he, um, he gets held up as like a like a paragon of what these people should be aiming for. And, yeah. you know, I, we don't need to get too political, but like, why do you think that we have so many mass shootings? It's stuff like this where it's like he's just wantonly murdering people by the end and has started a, a whole riot and like a uh, like a insurgents, essentially. And like, that's. Yeah. It's the type of thing where it's like, I see that every day in reality. I don't want that to be 
lifted up, like you said, like deified, I don't want that to happen in my media coverage without there being, you know, any kind of mitigation from the story where like the movie ends Mm. and he is, is he is deified by all of these people. He's lifted up as a figure of prominence that you should be following. And I think that that's inappropriate without that mitigating factor of, of saying, no, this is wrong. And that can obviously get preachy and like a fable, you know, but at the same time, I, again, I think it's the timing of the situation where like, if this movie had not come out in 2019 and we weren't having the world that we are having right now, I might've liked it. I can see myself liking it because in certain ways it's a little David Finchery. It's a little Martin Scorsese. You know, I can see, I can see those, um, influences in the movie. I'm, I am a, a, an accomplishment of movie watcher to see where he was influencing or straight up stealing from other people. But (laughs) in, in the time it came out, it was not appropriate. And then that's my opinion. And I think we should move on because we're already giving too much air to <laughs> we it. Are. We are. Too much know? air time to the Joker. Uh, we didn't even do an episode you, on it because we all didn't like it. Oh, yeah, we're good. That's the, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to talk it out and I felt quite good talking it out. And I'm glad I did it because I just, I hope someone hears my dissenting voice, um, which feels like a dissenting voice. Um, but um, The only other thing I'll say is that in my mind, I pretend Adam Driver won the Oscar for Marriage Story because that was my performance <laughs> last year. It's funny. I loved that movie, but there are parts in that movie when he annoys me and I love him. I actually think Scarlett Johansson was amazing because I think when you have to play the the straighter or the less dramatic yeah. person when the other person is acting out, sometimes I feel like that is the more difficult acting Job? Do you know what I mean? I will say though the the part that I he is great though. <laughs> yeah, the, the part of his performance that sold me on wanting him to win was actually not the big fight scene. It's at the very end when he's reading the letter to the boy, because he yes. does oh, some yes. things with his yes. face, and I was like, holy crap, that was incredible. He, I do think he's always had a little bit of a tendency to go big, but then yeah. he goes small, you know? So it kind of, like, even from girls, he was always like this. Because yeah. I suppose he's physically big as well. and then But you never see him as a threatening. I don't think he's ever played. Has he ever played anyone horrible? God, well, I can only think of good Kylo roles. Ren is not very nice. <laughs> Kylo Ren you feel sorry for by the end. You do. We haven't even talked about, actually, whether Joker or big short I presume they would fail on all sides I'm just trying to think so the only thing is I don't know I don't know what a lot of the behind the scenes things look like so um I think Hollywood is plenty of studios have already revealed that they're not meeting right like, exactly uh, like a diversity criteria anyway so I'll, I'll assume it's not definite that they would be so you've put on your list here Moonlight Crazy Rich Asians Parasite of course the big six so there's definitely with the the four of those I'd say it's it well the big six partly um they are championing um certainly n- non-white yeah it's not, not not always a uh, women focus which I presume is what you you thought about it do, do you want to let me know about why you picked some of it those? was yeah so I I think I so I was I like I told you when we were messaging I'm bad at coming <laughs> up with lists on the spot I do think that they that they would pass 
these things going forward. And a lot of it is because of Mm. things, you know, anecdotal things I know about the people involved in these movies. But I think the, what's, what makes it so interesting to me is what it, what these movies say about the people who made them. And I think it's also about what the people who made them say about their own culture, because with it, like, if we start with the big sick, I love Kumail Nanjiani. He's one of my favorite people. If you've never watched Silicon Valley on HBO, you should try to watch it because it's very funny. He is so interesting. And it was him and his wife wrote this movie together because it was based on what actually happened to them in their life. Mm -hmm. And it's the type of thing where all of these movies, they are, I think they are as good as they are and they were as successful as they are because they are so they feel so much more authentic it feels like reality in a way that like a movie like uh hidden figures or the help which are you know hidden figures is about real people but like Mm. white people made that movie (laughs) you know what i mean and the same with the help where it's it's obviously there's these beautiful strong performances by these amazing black actresses but at the same Mm. time you can tell that it's gone through a filter that was not their own. And it's upsetting when you go back and watch it and you're like, this is, they're like lifting up these white characters because they don't think people will watch this movie. If they're, if Kevin Costner doesn't knock down the whites only bathroom sign. And it's like, (laughs) you know, having seen that movie and then after the fact realizing that no, that never happened. And she didn't have to keep trekking across this NASA campus to go to the bathroom. Like, that's sort of like, why are you, why are you rewriting history that way? It just makes, yeah. it, it makes all of these problems worse in the moment, yeah. even though you're like patting yourself on the back and feeling good. And so that's the kind of thing where it's like something like the big sick, even though yes, Emily Gordon is white, you know, Kamal is Pakistani and he is able to properly, you know, give voice to his experience growing up and how his experience was when he met his white wife and they were, you know, trying to have a relationship with his very traditional family. And that's something that I don't think is easy for white people to grasp and display on camera, which goes similarly for Moonlight and Crazy Rich Asians and Parasite, because they all feel like such specific snapshots of life and such specific snapshots of very specific life in a way that I don't think is possible for any, like none of these people either could have made the other person's movie. Like Kumail could not have made Moonlight. And I think Mm. that that's important to note. It's not just that we need like random diversity behind the camera. I think people need to be telling their specific stories because there's also something like Roma, like that is Alfonso Cuaron's life. That was his childhood. Yeah. Like those things happened to him. And that's such a, it's obviously very big and epic and grand and beautiful, but it also is a very specific slice of life that he put on camera and you can tell that he meant it. And I think that's to me what makes a more interesting movie going experience especially at this point in my life, is I want something that feels authentically what it is. Even with Coron, um, he probably had to... It might have been that he was w- waiting for the budget to make it the way he wanted sure. to, but I presume he had this uh, the idea for Roma in his head like his whole life once he became a filmmaker. But even he had to make... 
you know, 10 other movies and make some money from Gravity or what have you before we could even do this. Yeah, the best Harry Potter, I always say. Prison of Azkaban, love it. Um, uh, Yeah, I I could not agree with you more. This is like, this is the greatest podcast where I just go, you're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, I like it. Well, maybe we should talk about Lord of the Rings in a bit and then you can tell me how I'm wrong. There are, there's personal reasons why Lord of the Rings is very important to me too, but I did, it was sort of a, I, I was not expecting it because I had never read the books when I was young. And so when the first yeah. movie came out and I was like, how old, what is that? 2000 or 2001? I was like 15. I, don't know, it was 99, so, I don't know. There were the three over the three years. Maybe it was 2000. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, I was like the exact right age for that to just in a, and then it's just, it's had a kind of an impact on my life in general. So it's like a... So many people. So many, like yeah. I was I was not... I hope when you were listening, you were, because for, for, for listeners, I'm, I'm, um, we, Chris and I are referring to an episode where I was uh, uh, not necessarily too kind about Lord of the Rings, but that's because I was mostly saying it didn't speak to me. I do believe, though, just thinking about the rules, it wouldn't pass any of them. No. To, there are some there are some female characters so you have you have that but I don't think you have whatever it is the 30% or, or or whatever to pass that um and I wouldn't have thought even though that's the biggest crew in the world it's still probably I, it depends mostly. on how many like indigenous New Zealanders that they hired yeah yeah maybe, maybe they sure. did pass <laughs> you can clutch at those straws and I do believe it'll be more than any other film but I still don't think that's uh, yeah enough Maoris to to yeah. make it um, no I definitely but, agree though because there are like I I obviously made a list of mostly movies that I think would pass but I think obviously there are so many movies in the past and current you know situation that I think I mean like I don't think Marriage Story would pass that's not You bring up a good thing, actually. I've been thinking about this because um, if a film that you have to think about the the background, I think, because if a film has so few characters and they're based on a particular family and that family is white, then I'm like, okay, fine. I suppose you could um, you could have the all of the cast as people of colour, maybe that would be the way to, to do it. So you, you make it legitimately work. Because I understand when people are related to each other and if they have the same biological parents, you, you can't suddenly, like, you know, cast yeah. a, a, a white sister and a black brother. I get that. But it says for the new rules that there are four categories, A, B, C, D, and you have to pass two. I think if you did enough behind the scenes... You probably still could, but I you just could just put the people getting so pissy about it. Stupid. It's it, again. This is the loophole. No, I definitely agree. I think that because I was looking at the list of like this year's Oscar winners, um, or I get like technically last year's Oscar winners, and I was like, honestly, I think the only ones that pass are Parasite and Little Women, and Little Women only passes because of all the women. I don't know that it would have passed behind the camera. You know what I mean? This is the problem you see as well. There are lots of different groups. So mm-hmm. if you make a film all about white women and, and all and all white women are by camera, you've probably still passed. But is that correct? No. You know, it should yeah. be Asian women and women of colour. Sure. And, and, you know, and uh, yeah. So I think that's the issue with testing these rules. I think it's mm. going to be interesting to see. And I'm not saying people are going to make movies uh deliberately designed just to put themselves into contention but i think what i'm saying is this is so much more wider 
than people think. We didn't love um, oh, no. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We didn't love it. It's not it's not my least favorite um, Tarantino movie, but I didn't love it. And I think part of it is because, like you said, it's a, it's a period movie. It takes place in the 60s. But what was weird for me is mm. I don't mind when he does revisionist history because Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite movies. My issue, though, is that it was it's not, not it's not real <laughs> well well sure inglorious masters is pretty revisionist <laughs> the entire time like you can see the changes the entire time but with yeah. once upon a time in hollywood i think first of all not enough people know about the real life murder of sharon tate and and then it's only revisionist at the end because the rest of the characters are totally fictional and that's the stuff that that's what irritated me the most is that none of it was none of it was different until the very end. And that's when it was different. And I was like, what a weird place to choose to be different when you could have been making these vaster changes to the history of it from before, from like, for well, like I the suppose, whole movie. Yeah. But I suppose that's the twist, isn't it? He's trying to get a twist. So I suppose you can't have a twist until, or yeah. a, a real, a real surprise twist until you do it towards the end. But um, I would have liked that too. I actually have yeah. a slightly different critique, but I don't, I don't disagree with what you said. But um, my issue was I hated the way Margot Robbie didn't seem to interact with anyone. I know she was supposed to be having this lovely day to herself, but I actually don't think people were saying that she, she the Sharon Tate came across as so nice. But I was like, she's sitting in the cinema telling people, I was like, this is me. Look at me. <laughs> That's great. And put her feet up, and I was like, oh god, you could tell this is a terrible you know? <laughs> The feet uh, thing, the leaving sh- aside oh. the feet thing. <laughs> yeah. Margaret Qualley as well. I was like, I, yeah. I, I I'm not often uncomfortable knowing the feet thing, but I was like, wow, Quentin, come on. You're just like doing well, it for everyone now. The thing Ugh. for me about him and the feet thing is that it gets more uncomfortable as he gets older and the women in his movies get younger. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, because like it was for me, it's fine because it's just the dancing scene in Pulp Fiction. And then it's like yeah. just a couple of parts in um, Kill Bill. And so but it, it gets more it, it's like he knows it's a thing now. And so he feels like he has to really focus on the feet. So there's like four sets of dirty women's feet yeah. in this movie. And I just dirty, was like, what? so dirty. Yeah. <laughs> and also like with Thurman, I thought there was a kind of added edge to it, which was there's nothing wrong with a woman having bigger feet. Cause I think she has like a kind of slightly bigger feet than an average uh, woman. Then yeah. yeah Quali's dirty feet on that, on Brad Pitt's windscreen yeah. was like, yeah, I felt disgusted in a way if I didn't know about his fetish, which I felt disgusted. I just, just thought, this is weird. But now I'm like, oh, this is Pabby. Nothing about the fetish, too. So. <laughs> yeah, so like, so there was the, the, the Robbie Sharon Tate not being able to interact with people. And then, um, like, yeah, I, I, I just... Um, I, I, I just felt strange about the women. So I quite liked, talking of girls, I liked Lena Dunham, actually, her role. Oh, I thought yeah. she was pretty good in it, and I and um, yeah, I, I actually the bit of the ranch was amazing mm-hmm. because I I wanted to leave the cinema. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I was so because you never know with Tarantino when the violence is going to start. That part because I think Dakota Fanning was brilliantly cast as Squeaky Throne. <laughs> amazing, <laughs> like such, such a weird thing. casting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, 
God, that relationship again was weird. I forget that actor's name. He's been in so many things, but it's between perfect. them was just... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was just so... Um, uh, and just quickly, while I remember, Hidden Figures, again, don't want to detract from the amazing women of colour, but um, Kirsten Dunst's role in that film is so good. She's awful. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing where it's like... It, and and to, to go back again to the help, it's like... It, Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis are obviously incredible in that movie, but like, can we talk about Jessica Chastain? And it's like, it's the type of thing where it's like, I love them all so much, but like, that's the movie that put Jessica Chastain on my map. And so that's why I like it. And so it's like, when I go back and watch it, it's because I want to watch Jessica Chastain and like Bryce Dallas Howard, who is the Kirsten Dunst of that movie, just truly awful and horrible. But it's like, even in these movies where they're supposed to be, the the focus and the point of the movies they're not given the best material which is no, sort of alarming and disappointing yeah I, I suppose it's so much easier to be a caricature villain though isn't it that's yeah. the problem oh, and now make white people the villain oh look which they should be um uh look at the funny things they can say in their villainous role yeah i just I, i'm i'm not entirely sure how to deal with that because we don't want to start going back in times to you know mm-hmm. ma- making people of color villains so it's of like course. yeah it's yeah although maybe there is just an inherent racism because i don't remember those villainous characters being quite as compelling to watch it was yeah. just horrible so i think you're right there might, there might be some unconscious bias there as to how you write it so i haven't seen the hateful eight and i have never seen jackie uh-huh. brown but those are the only two i've never seen but i really don't like Django unchained my favorites are are not anyone else's favorites. I really my my favorite Tarantino movie is Kill Bill Volume Two, oh. because it's the talkier one. And yes. then second to that, it, I like um, he and uh, Robert Rodriguez did Grindhouse, and I like his section of Grindhouse I called I like yeah. Grindhouse. <laughs> I, I love it again because it's like talky, and and that one passes the Bechdel test because it's four women. Yes. And they all have names and none of them are talking about dudes almost the whole time. Actually, there's eight women because there's four women at the beginning and then the four women that you follow for the rest of the movie. But those yeah. are my two favorite Tarantinos. And they're, that's not common. Yeah. Well, I think it's good to mention as well that he he's he's not stingy with the female characters. It's just yeah. it, it, a lot of the time it is just his unconscious bias because when he does give people things to do, like all of his female characters are memorable. We're, we're, they're not always passing the Bechdel test. But then if you look at Kill Bill 1 and 2, you know, you get quite a lot of that there because you, you um, he's never afraid to make women just as powerful or evil or conflicted as uh, right. as men. I wanted to talk about Inglorious Bastards specifically because now that mm. is Will's favourite Tarantino movie. And I would argue argue that it has we would both argue that it has with leaving aside Uma Thurman in Kill Bill I think it has his two most dynamic well-rounded and powerful women mm. however likes his blondes. <laughs> he does like his blondes and we do get a Diane Kruger foot but <laughs> I think the issue arises and again, I think that they are very strong female characters. I think they're really well acted. I think they're given a lot of the more interesting stuff, especially Melanie Laurent in that movie is, is given a lot of really interesting so things to do, yeah. but they never interact. And they're, they both are only ever talking to men. Okay, and I think men. that, yeah. so it technically does not pass 
even yeah. though they are two of what I would argue his, certainly his most interesting female characters and two of the more interesting characters of like the 2000s in, in movies. I think that they are really iconic in a way that I think not a lot of people really recall because there's so, there's a lot heaped on, you know, uh, Brad Pitt and Chris Walsh. Yeah. But I think that they are, they are sort of what tie the movie together in a way is these two women, you know, both on the same side, but separated by circumstance. And I think that's really interesting, but that's something that happens with most of his movies, except for death proof, because there are mm-hmm. not often multiple women who interact with one another, but that doesn't mean he's bad at women. I think despite him being kind of a dick in real life, he's good at female characters. He's, he's like good at making them yeah. vulnerable and powerful and interesting and giving them plot that like suits them and stuff. And that's the kind of thing where, that's sort of where I have to separate the art from the artist because I know he's sort of a tool in real life, but I'm like, but look Mm. what he's doing. It's so interesting what he's doing. And you, again, how I was talking about those other movies, you can tell that he's doing what he wants to be doing and he's doing the thing like he's, he's making movies for himself and they just happen to be resonating with other people. And I think that's kind of all you can ask for at a certain point. Well, his story in itself is just um, awe-inspiring, isn't it? Worked in the uh, wherever he worked, the blockbuster, the uh, the rental shop, and then just watched everything, and then started doing it, and then started writing. And you're absolutely right about what you said about dialogue as well. He's like a master dialogue yeah. writer. All the stuff, like in the very first scene of um, Roswell Dogs, is like enough for mm-hmm. for that. But I would say, if you can bring yourself to watch Hateful Eight at some point, like do not think for a second it's going to be Bechdel <laughs> test passing because no. there isn't. There is only really one character, uh, female character, and that's Jennifer Jason Lee but she is a great character she's a great actress but um uh, what she does throughout the film is just she's just like she she spits she shouts she swears in a way you could say there's there's another set of prejudices there about this kind of wild wanton woman Mm -hmm. but because she's such a sophisticated actor um it never quite gets to to those levels and um i completely agree with you yeah that tarantino writes i actually to be honest he most of the time he doesn't differentiate between genders he he only does it in the sense like with inglorious bastards because that's how women were treated that that they were their their roles especially when they're doing a lot of the infiltration stuff with Mm -hmm. brad like kruger's character she she can't be anything other than that she is because mm-hmm. that works well, behind the scenes. There's a lot more, but it, seeing behind the scenes is the way that I think a director can always play about with historical fact. But um, I get that that he still seems to make them just as interesting as the male character, even if there are characters, even if there are fewer of them. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the issue with the Bechdel test, which I've you know brought up on numerous episodes, which is it's it is fallible. Mm-hmm. You can have these amazing characters and um yeah the, the, you know you have a lot of two-handers don't you and then all two-handers with a man and a woman um fell the Bechdel test but um <laughs> uh, they could still be like just as interesting even if you're talking about a woman like I always used to talk about the reverse Bechdel test or I don't know if I invented it or someone did where it was like if guys are just constantly talking about yeah. women <laughs> as long as this woman appears at some point and, and does what have you then I kind of feel like well at least she's central to the plot but um yeah yeah I um 
I think we're kind of making a case for Tarantino, but maybe not for Todd Phillips here. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my thing but that's i think it goes i think it goes across the board with a lot of these like very famous male directors many of whom i really really like i mean you can say similar things for uh you know certain david fincher movies you can say the same for christopher nolan where i haven't been able to see tenet yet because i refuse to go to the movie theater but (laughs) i've heard that elizabeth debicki is like kind of pointless and it's like i know that christopher nolan is capable of writing very interesting characters who who are multi-dimensional and stuff but it does seem he has a little bit of an issue getting that to happen with the female characters we're like because even in something like inception i love inception ellen page is kind of a footnote marion cotillard has a really good uh like arc and she she has to uh Yes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. And it's like, I couldn't remember if in real life she'd already come out or not. Maybe she hadn't, and therefore I'm looking at it, you know. I, yeah, I don't think, I don't like, think she had it. at oh. that point, but yeah. it is, it's like the it's two of like them have like negative chemistry. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, they don't have any chemistry, yeah. But also I feel like Nolan's kind of saying, like, you know, you, you, your character is straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we're yeah. going to make that really fucking clear really really clear yeah <laughs> kissing scene and it was a, the whole thing is just like straight yeah we've t- well i've seen tell it twice so um because i braved it um <laughs> i i would say to vicky to pr- pretty good she is underused but um like uh it's the problem with none because dimple capadia is in it as well and she plays character and she probably gets like not as much screen time as to but she gets at least she feels like she's got some power Okay. But there's a, there's no women talking to women. No, it's ridiculous. Right. The problem with Nolan is that he's really trying to get his like race credentials up because he knows he deals with many white men, and okay. like so he managed to get like you know with JDW as being the lead. That's that's great. Yeah. He he speaks to Himish Patel's character sometimes, so that's good. But otherwise, <laughs> you, you just, I just have like, you, you don't have token black guy as your lead. It's like, you don't have to address one issue at a time either, Christopher and you can address two issues at the same time i know and it's it's just i have to say the way i absolutely love it and i love every single nolan film and i I will you know go to jail for my crimes against feminism but um (laughs) because he really has some crimes and that's why i love westworld so much people like really did not like i I seem to get the impression that a lot of people did not like season three i absolutely loved i love every season of westworld because i think jonah nolan being with his wife lisa joy is definitely part of it but i do think jonah nolan has caught on a lot earlier than christopher nolan okay on the intersection of uh at least race and gender um but um i'd love to hear your take on tenet you should do a pod episode when you do see it i'm a sucker for christopher nolan's visuals i think he i think almost nobody makes like as clean a movie as he does they're always very clean and shiny and i do love that in like my big budget you know movie theater movies i think that's really great but I it's you know sometimes the story is a little uh, like are you sure are you 100% and sure Tenet, it's like I had I had to watch it and I had like devoured everything on Reddit and I wrote yeah. these pieces about it because I got so into I need to understand this movie because he does create <laughs> that tension um 
which is ridiculous because some people do just want to go and have a good time but I'm like no in-depth analysis like it's <laughs> the next exam um uh what I would say is about Tenet quickly as well is that um when you said about the visuals and he's so good with the sounds as, mm-hmm. as well like Tenet is very much about because music is backwards visuals about I think you're gonna love that side of it so maybe if you split your brain yeah into, I'll just watch this mindlessly hi <laughs> Shut up! We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. I'm not gonna bite you. So I might yield that t-shirt. Is there anything you particularly want to highlight that you think would pass the Vector test and or the Oscar criteria um, that you do you do really love? So we can just like ha- have a nice little section of positivity. For no, totally. I okay. mean, you know, it's it's like we said, we weren't totally sure about and I'm I'm using a lot of recent stuff, I guess I should think of something some like older things, but. I, I will say that I did. We we discussed potentially whether or not Little Women did pass, um, yeah. and I think it obviously passes the Bechdel test. There's nothing but women, rarely talking about men, you know, through the whole thing. Women and Timothy Chalamet. So it's like, yeah, what could and you Timothy Chalamet, honorary woman, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Your words, um, no lie. <laughs> But yeah, I definitely, that was one, that was one that, you know, all three of us, my husband and Will and I, we all three, and I was a little surprised at how much my husband liked it. I thought he was just going to be like, no, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, a movie about ladies. It's not totally for me, but he was so impressed with it to the point where like we went to see it twice in the theater (laughs) and I was a little bit shocked by that and in a good way. And then Will loved it too. And I obviously had, I've read the book and I have an affinity for the 1994 version with Winona Ryder. And so I, I love, love, loved it. And it, that again, though, is something where I do think a woman directed the 94 one as well, but there was, yeah, Yeah. there was something so much more personal about Greta Gerwig's interpretation of it. It felt like I keep saying about all these other movies, it felt realer in a way. It felt more authentic and it felt something about it just felt like it clicked more than the Winona Ryder version. And that's something that I think, you know, in the last handful of years, we've gotten, like I was talking about earlier, these handful of like younger female directors who are really absolutely just as capable if not more so of telling these stories specifically. And I think, yeah. I, I don't think there was a better combination than Greta Gerwig and Little Women. And the fact that she like, you know, was doing the screenplay and she was doing, you know, rewrites and, and writing that speech that Amy gives to Lori, like in mm-hmm. minutes before they shot it and everything. And like, it's that kind of hands-on detail that I feel like, I mean, and she was pregnant while she was filming it. I mean, that's all the yeah. kind of stuff that it's so, it's so wild to me to think about how in touch with every part of this she had to be in order to make that movie as perfect as it was. And, mm. and that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that really makes me love movies like that and want to watch them constantly. And it's a similar thing with Parasite, which would definitely pass the Oscar 
things and probably uh, the Bechdel test because the daughter and the mother, I think, speak about lots of things besides boys. Maybe not lots yeah, of things. There's, but a, they there's, have a, there's a few female characters because yeah. they have the, yeah, and. Um, yeah, her mother plus the mother of the kids. There's quite a few. Yeah. Just quickly, I was going to say this earlier, actually. Um, uh, Bong Joon-ho is just so good. And everyone in that film yeah. is has exactly the same power. You know, everybody's doing something. And even though there are these traditional male-female married setups or what have you, everyone's just as callous as one another. Everyone's yep. got a, a footing in the thing. And um, yeah, passes the Bechdel test without even realising, but also just you never feel like any character is sidelined, um, which is right. what a family is about, isn't it? In families, it's like, yeah. well, I suppose, you know, there's a whole separate thing about whether you've got a favourite child or what have you, but <laughs> everyone has their role in the family and everyone does something. And I think... The, the because I, I I had problems when I saw Parasite because I had heard so much so much good about it mm-hmm. that when I saw it I was a little bit let down not because I didn't think it was bad in any way but I think I'd built it up to be the best film of all time ever sure. and so it was never going to be like that and what I've learned about Parasite is as time as time has gone on and I've only seen I think I've seen a bit of it but I haven't seen I've only seen it once all the way through mm. As time's gone on, I'm still remembering things. Yeah. And it's like, wow, I didn't realise how much of an impression that made So we uh, managed in my brain. To... And I'm, I'm sorry, I stopped you in the middle of talking. No, about no, it. Yeah. we managed to see it, um, like, just before the, like, huge uproar about it. So we have, like, a smallish indie theatre that's, like, across town from us. And uh, so we were able to see it there because they get they get things like this released, you know, on a a slightly different schedule. So it had already been at a festival and it was like kind of making the rounds to like art house theaters. And we managed to see it just before it like actually blew up. So I didn't get overhyped about it. So I like went in and I was like, wow, this is legitimately one of the best movies I've seen in the last five years because it's so different. And, and it goes back to the same thing that I've been saying this whole episode, which is that I just think, because it it just is obviously everybody in it is Korean, but it just feels so specifically Korean. And like you couldn't make that movie with with yes. white people. I don't necessarily think it it works the same way as it does even even in America where the the like wealth disparity is rather large. I still think it doesn't work the same way for some reason as it does. And I think it's because he was specifically trying to make that metaphor the way that he did and and in his country where he knows how it operates and everything about that there's there's again an authenticity to it that I don't I don't think you could really wrangle a different way and he's somebody who who's able to do this a lot and with with a wide yeah. variety of genres because he made a movie a long time ago called The Host which is a monster movie and it is similarly very specific and then with something like Snowpiercer. I mean, mm. and that that's one of his one of his only like majority English language movies and mm-hmm. there is something so exactly right about Snowpiercer and I still don't understand how it flew so under the radar until it went on Netflix. It does not make sense to me because it's such well, a know, good movie. It, yeah. You know, we were talking about the beginning of the call where I said um, things didn't come over here. It was mm. actually Snowpiercer was one of the movies that taught me about it. We didn't get a release. So wow. there wasn't you a know, UK release of it. Yeah, yeah I, I watched it in New York. I was on holiday. Yeah. yeah, 
I was on holiday in New York and I was like, what is this? And then I saw it in a, a New York theater because I just yeah. never even heard of it. Yeah. And then now it's Netflix. So Netflix has changed everything. So course, that's so yeah. good because that's why you get these movies that like yeah. some average movie that someone made three years ago. And then what was I watching this? Oh, it was awful. This, so, sorry, after everything I've said about not criticizing, <laughs> I'm criticizing. It's called Jungle. Did you see it with Daniel Radcliffe in it? It came no. up in my Netflix as this isn't, the, you know, they do the top 10 ratings this is in the top 10 and I was like what is this film from 2017 and I just put it on and I was like this is why I didn't see it when it came out but I was like someone someone must have found that some algorithm is saying this is in the top 10 so huh. maybe people are going oh Daniel Radcliffe let's watch this and I'm like wow what a weird <laughs> little movie I mean I love Daniel um, Radcliffe but they're not all hits <laughs> So, oh, you've got to give him some cred for what a career of like, oh, oh my totally. God, he's done every type of crazy movie. I yeah. actually, so, I, the, first, the first time I was in England, I was able to see his run in the West End for Equus. Oh, me too. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, seeing him naked is very strange. It was strange because it was all, it was like his first run. I think he was like 17 or 18 because he, he was yeah. still making Harry Potter. I managed to see him on Broadway too. He did How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And that was very good too. How was that? Yeah. It was good. Yeah. It was a musical. I actually have the playbill. It's sitting right behind me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he is. He is great. Um, uh, yeah, so we talked. Yeah, so we talked a bit about th- things that we um, that that might not pass that we still love, and things that uh, you love that definitely pass, and how we want more of that. I suppose my last question then is: Is there anything you want to see in the future that you think maybe these new rules are not yet doing? Mm. So I do. What's interesting to me is I do think at some point the rules will have to change again or or pivot back in some way just because i i wonder if at a certain point there will be an overcorrection sort of and it'll turn into like how people argue about affirmative action and things like that i do wonder if there will be a point where it has to Re- recalibrate I guess is what yeah. I what I'm trying to say just because I feel like making the making the requirements j- just to get people in the door I think is absolutely great but then I you know you don't want an overcorrection where there's there's just mediocre people of a different gender or race you know doing the same thing <laughs> you know I don't think that Oscars it shouldn't be a place for mediocrity it should be a place for like the top of the you know the the top of the category yeah. So there's stuff like that where I'm not sure how much more I want. I guess I wouldn't hate higher percentages. I think there should certainly be equal parity between men and women. Um, But I guess I'm not sure because, you know, it goes back to the same thing where and just like the Bechdel test where you can't really you can't say you're not allowed to to make movies that don't pass these anymore you know like that's never going to happen there are ah, things it would be like it would be like a permanent pandemic because there would only be like 10 percent of all movies sorry there, yeah i, there, I, I agree with you that it's such a disparity it would no, yeah that would never happen but there's never going to be a point where we stop making movies about white men in history that's just not gonna happen there will be movies about white men in history forever but it's something sort of like we just recently watched um 
the Dev Patel, David Copperfield that just came out. Did you like it? I did. We really liked it. And I think that's the, that's what I'd like to see going forward is I think a bit more leaning into the blind casting of things that were traditionally white, because that's a Dickens novel about, you know, what I I believe is a white, (laughs) I think David Copperfield white. It's not like Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, but you know, Dev Patel played him. There's like a black love interest who has an Asian father. And it's sort of like, it's very interesting. And so I think I'd like to see more stuff going that direction because I think it's fascinating to see people of different races playing roles like that, especially like famous literary roles. Yeah. Basically because I think they're able to bring something more to it. We're like, okay, let's say my favorite, my favorite Austin hero that's been put on screen is Colonel Brandon in the sense and sensibility of Emma Thompson. Oh, bless you. I love Alan Rickman. (laughs) I love Colonel Brandon. I love his relationship with Marianne and the whole family. I love it. That being said, I think there's a universe where, you know, we could have like a black Colonel Brandon or an Indian Colonel Brandon. And I think that that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see more of. Like somebody put this picture after we watched David Copperfield, somebody posted this picture of John Boyega in like a flowy, like Regency <laughs> on a horse. Yes. And they were like, who will, who should he play from like liter- literature? And I was like, Heathcliff. It was the first thing that popped in my mind. And I was like, I mean, literally anybody, he could absolutely be, you know, um, Oh God, it's just yeah. gone right out of my head. Darcy. David. He, he could be I mean, Mr. Darcy. Uh, Mr. Darcy. Yeah. He could be whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing that that I find so interesting because I think there's it's able to bring a different nuance to the story. If you're yeah. if you're not focusing on just that it's like a bunch of white people, you can have these different types and different levels and different commitments to the performance that I think don't always come through. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah I think with Boyega like I think you've hit something as well because like with all respect to him he's he's been doing quite a lot personally and in a kind of um I don't want to say aggressive that was the first word that came around that was the wrong word but like powerful manner and I'm like yeah that is energy passionate thank you see correcting please keep (laughs) correcting me um uh, that is the energy for Heathcliff, isn't it? Definitely. So, Definitely. yeah. Like, Just start growing that hair, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, well, that kind of leads me on to, like... Um, my, my my just quick fire final questions, which is... Um, uh, one, um, is there anything that you've seen, that particularly, let's say, with, with women, getting back to just focusing on women, is there anything that you've seen that's got some great female characters or, or better passing that you think other people haven't seen? You might not know this off the top of your head, but sometimes I find that women in film always have something where they're like, a lot of people haven't seen this and they remember the female characters. Sure. Or so, filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, my, before you said that people haven't seen, I was going to say Lady Bird and Booksmart because those are like the most recent ones that really, yeah. uh, that I really, really connected with and that felt very authentic. <laughs> oh, and eighth grade, I think. Um, yeah. But I think something that I think not a lot of people have seen, uh, two actually, and from the same writer, uh, Diablo Cody, she did a movie, uh, I think it's like 11 years old now, called Jennifer's Body, which not a lot of people have seen with uh, Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox. And it is so underrated. 
and it's such an interesting portrayal of female friendship. And it also has, it's like, it has a horror bent where, you know, Jennifer turns into like a succubus essentially, but (laughs) it's very interesting. And I think it is one of Megan Fox's best performances. And I think she's actually very gifted. I think Michael Bay just didn't really do anything for her. And Hollywood generally, and she leaned into it. I'm not not blaming her, but just saying if I'm going to get work, I have to lean into my sex kitten thing. I think she was really good in New Girl, just to to have some comedic chops. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, I'm like, why is it? But then she still keeps wanting to make some stuff. Like now I'm like, Megan, you've got some power now. Yeah. Make some stuff. I would love to see Jennifer's body because I do love Diablo Cody. And I've seen the trailer and I didn't watch it at the time because I was worried it wouldn't be for me. And I think it is 100 for me now yeah it may yeah, be i think so i will do that it's it's quite good and we actually we did an episode about it with uh the second movie that i'm gonna say which is also written by diablo cody but i think directed by jason reitman but i don't remember now um and it's called tully and it was with Charlize yes, Theron and yeah. mackenzie davis i so i have no children and we don't plan to have children either it's it's not for us uh (laughs) but (laughs) it's about a new mother Charlize Theron is a she's pregnant at the beginning and then she's a new mother and it's about her and the night nanny who is Mackenzie Davis and I don't know even having not experienced that I don't know the last time I saw something so authentically female in a in a modern adult way it was very specific about like the division of, uh, you know, physical and emotional labor in a relationship when there are children involved. And it was just fascinating. It was very, very good and interesting. Charlize Theron like gained weight for it so that she could be like in the right mindset. And her performance mm. is spectacular. We managed to see that at the Florida Film Festival a couple of years ago. And that mm. one has stuck with me. I've got a bit of an embarrassing confession, actually, about Tully, which is that um, the reason why I haven't seen it is because I don't really like stickers. And you know how she has all these stickers all over her face? It really upsets me. So what I need to do is, like, how many sticker scenes? (laughs) really don't play a part in the movie, I promise. (laughs) Thank you so much to Christine for her time. It was great talking to her. Um, I hope you're okay with a couple of the sound issues there. Occasionally it goes out. Um, and that's London to Florida for you. Um, if you have any issues, then send us an email at beyondbeck at gmail.com or on Twitter at beyond underscore Beckdale. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.